I'm Evans Maragis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest is the singer-songwriter, opera composer, Rufus Wainwright. We're going to talk about his latest opera, Hadrian, which is due to be premiered soon by the Canadian Opera Company, and which is being workshopped as part of Opera Fusion New Works, an amazing collaboration between Cincinnati Opera and the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, housed at the University of Cincinnati. We'll be talking about writing opera, writing popular music songs, being in what he affectionately calls the family business, the son of two famous singer-songwriters, Loudon Wainwright and Kate McGarrigal, as well as how a modern-day performer deals with stress. Rufus, uh, a new work has brought you to Cincinnati, workshopping your opera, Hadrian, which will be premiered by the Canadian Opera Company. And I guess I'd like to sort of jump around a little bit because since opera has brought you to Cincinnati, um, can you share maybe some of a couple of your earliest memories of opera in general? Yeah. Um, well, I had a healthy distaste for opera uh, when I was a child, uh, like most people should. Um, I, you know, th- we didn't have a tremendous amount of it around at the house. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was. I grew up with my mother, Kate McGarrigal, in Montreal. I mean, I saw my dad uh, periodically, but I was mostly with my mom. And they, they had, she had an incredible taste in music, but it was mostly thing, you know, they listened to a lot of Glenn Gould, <laughs> a lot of folk music, a Bob Dylan. Um, and op- the only thing that really presented itself in opera was um, tenors. My mother loved, my mother and my grandmother and my aunts, they all loved tenors and they loved and this was, you know, in in the gold, still in the golden era of tenors when Pavarotti uh, was at his zenith and and uh, and so forth. But they loved their big, the big um, debate was about what who was better, uh, Gili or Björling. Oh my God! Those were the two. Those were the two kind of contestants, and they would and then they would kind of a b, um, you know, whether it was, you know, the uh, uh, certain th- things like. Um, the Injamiscu mm-hmm. from uh, the, the Re- Requiem, yeah. and like you know, there are different approaches, and uh, and so that's, that's a very a, nerdy. Yeah, that's a very yeah, opera nerdy yeah, household, yeah. though. Because they, they, I mean, they they sort of knew about it, but they had a friend who was who was a big opera fanatic. Anyway, so 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 it was sort of it was in the it was in the ballpark, shall we say? But I didn't, I wasn't, you know, drawn to it so much. My mother, one of her greatest. Um, uh, one of the proudest things that she was of was that she played all of Cegelida Damanina on the piano and could sing it. <laughs> and so she would get kind of drunk <laughs> and sing that often. Um, but you know, then, it you, is, know. <laughs> you know it is a song to be sung when you had yeah, a couple. Yeah, it's no, it was, just, yeah, it's no, it was, just love personified. No, 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 and it was always, yeah. and she loved to, and she was very proud that she could play all the chords and all the changes and do the whole thing. So, so by ear, you know, she this was she wasn't following. She never, I mean, she could read music, but she she did it all by she mostly played by ear. Anyway, so that was the way it worked, and so it was always in the periphery. I will say that you know, my first I studied piano first, mm-hmm. and 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 probably my first my very first attraction was to Chopin, and to piano music and Satie and um, Beethoven and stuff like that. That's where I was really um, that was was a, that was what I was in the crux of. Um, and opera was kind of looming, and um, and then uh, one and the only the only big opera piece. I mean, this is kind of a good early early memory because it, it was an orchestral piece, but it was it's not very well known, um, but it but it's a fantastic piece. Um, it's and my mother was obsessed with it, and she would play it very late at night and wake me up when I was a child. Um, she would suddenly play the. Um, the uh, Notre Dame uh, overture from by Franz Schmidt. Sure, you know, is that with that amazing fifth at the beginning, one five, da, 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 this uh, Herbert von Karajan recording. So I, that, I often had that waking me up. Um, it's the only thing so, from that opera that's remembered. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it's, it is such a great piece, and that was sort of her favorite, her, her favorite orchestral piece. So it was from an opera, anyways. And then um, one day uh, when I was around. Thirteen, I think I just turned thirteen. My uh, my mother and aunt uh, got a recording of it wasn't a new recording, but it was um, I guess it was re-released or something of 
Verdi's Requiem uh, with UC Burling and Lansing Price. Price. Yeah, right. and, and we listened to it together from top to bottom. And by the end of that recording, I was a complete opera fanatic. It wow. was like it was like a two-hour conversion. Well, those are four Death, great opera yeah, voices: yeah, like Rosa yeah. Elias and Giorgio Tozzi yeah, and yeah. Fritz Reiner and yeah, the Vienna Philharmonic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a it's an but iconic yeah, recording. Yeah, and that and that um, that really did the trick. <laughs> and so by the by by after and it really became a literal death mass for my previous self. You know, after hearing that piece of music. And um, and it's funny and, that a yep. piece that was not written for the opera house, but you know, people say that the Verdi Requiem is opera goes to church. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And it it is yeah. operatic. It's just dealing with a sacred text. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, uh, uh, later on, um, I had a very uh, good friend uh, in high school whose father uh, was this guy, Mr. Tonry. But his father, her grandfather, had been he'd been the um, he had been the uh, landlord of, of 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 the Metropolitan Opera. He wasn't. He wasn't the. He he'd worked there anyway. Somebody. Had, he, so he grew up there. But he said, hands down, the most amazing performance he ever saw in his life was. Uh, it was a, about a week after Kennedy was shot. Wow. They did Verdi's Requiem at the yeah. Opera House, and and I think they'd closed all the theaters for about a week and then the first performance was Verdi's Requiem and it was and I think it was Leontine Price actually who, who did it very well um, so so yeah so I think arguably it is the greatest opera <laughs> one of them <laughs> well it certainly has form it has yeah. structure it, the, the voices are evenly distributed yeah. there's duets there's yeah. trios there's quartets there's yeah. a great and part then, for the chorus and, and, and even mean, when you look at um, you know how Verdi was viewed I mean it's really that piece that um, foreshadowed his 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 further development. It's really after he wrote that piece that you know Boito kind of acknowledged him fully, and and yeah. it was it was understood that he was we're on to Otello was, and Falstaff. Yeah, yeah exactly so. right. So growing up in Montreal, uh, I'm presuming you grew up bilingual, right? Living in yes. in, in a in a French yeah. Canadian city. Yes. And did you speak the the particular yeah. Montreal French? I guess so. I guess so. I mean, not. I had to go to French school because uh-huh. it was it was by law. It was it was a, during the um, separatist years, and there was a heavy duty um, uh, anti English sentiment, um, which at the time was incredibly weird, <laughs> but now in retrospect was kind of great because I had to learn French. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's one of these strange kind of. Um, uh, double-edged swords. You, you know, know, it's something I've never been able to, because uh, I've never had uh, a chance to talk to someone about this who is from Montreal. When you are learning in school, you're learning, obviously, let's say, uh, Quebec history and whatnot, yeah. but are you also being taught French culture from France? Are you that no. kind of history? So it's all... It's very different. It's I mean, all... I mean, the language is completely the same. It's right. French. Yeah. So you learn French. I mean, the ad, there's an accent and there's certain expressions, obviously, that, yeah. that are very different. Um... But the uh, in terms of history, probably Quebecois. Yeah, Quebecois history. Um, you know what you really learned a lot of, because I think even in for my generation though it was probably the end of it was a lot of religious history. Quebec was very religious, and not and, 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 and when I was a kid it was all ending. Right. But like for my mother's generation, it was far more um, Catholic than, than anywhere, Catholic, yeah, than yeah. in, you know, Europe. I mean, it was, they still had to read everything with the imprimatur on it. And wow. and so I think a lot of... Um, were, so you I, an, were you an altar boy as a kid? No, you know, I was never baptized. Um. My mother, for some, my, both my parents decided not to have my sister nor I baptized for, I don't know why. It, mm-hmm. it was sort of a strange thing. But we would go to church, <laughs> and we weren't allowed to take the communion or do, it was like a strange... <laughs> wow. God, I don't know what that was about, but so you're growing. It, it's interesting because of your own uh, the way that you come to music. You're growing. You're growing up within and outside yes. of society yes. at the same time. Yes. Well, it's very. I mean, when you bring that up, uh, what it was for me when, as, and you you can say my my sister Martha as well. What it was is that we were American because we were born in New York. Americans living. I, I, we were essentially Anglophone, though my grandmother was was half French. Um, but we were Anglophone Americans living in a living in Quebec, 
who are also li- who are outsiders, but then Quebecers are outsiders in Canada, right. and then Canada is an outsider from the United States. So it's like it was this strange, um, impacted um, uh, seclusion, <laughs> uh, which I think actually was kind of in- good in, in the end because because it wasn't. Um, we never. I, I never felt uh, beholden to any uh, to anyone mm-hmm. or to any or to any group. Mm-hmm. I was. I was always, um, uh, you know, just just focused on, on on my my own personal path. So, when do you start writing music of any sort? Well, I was very young. I mean, I my, I toured, uh, or, or I didn't so much tour. Well, we, we 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 performed on stage when we were when we were in like five or six. Um, with your mom, with our mom, yeah, mm-hmm. not not not. It wasn't a grueling schedule, but just occasionally they they they'd bring us up, um, and they didn't like to tour so much because it was you know it was just too hard to do when you had young children, but uh, but when they did, they always incorporated their kids, um, my sister and I and my cousins as well. Anyway, so so there was that, and then I you know there are umpteenth photographs of me as a toddler reaching out to the piano. I mean, it's it's a bit bizarre. You, know? <laughs> you were They're destined. Just, yeah, constantly <laughs> just hanging out there. And so I started piano really young. Um, and I would start writing, and I started writing immediately. Um, I was never, ever, I studied piano for almost 20 years. I was never very good technically. Um, I spent most of my time either composing or sp- talking <laughs> to the teacher. Uh, so in other words, the piano ultimately became your vehicle yeah. for your, yes. your your musical expression. Yes. But yes. as a writer. Yes, as a writer. And I and I did, you know, play classical pieces as well and yeah. um and studied, you know, solfege and and uh and, and, and stuff like that and harmony. But um but it uh but it was more I think for me it was more a sense the piano offered uh, a, a kind of um it was it was it was a form of protection, a form of of uh, it was like an, an or another or escape, you know, a little a world that I could um, disappear in, and uh, and it was uh, yeah, and 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 also my mother was felt the very same way about about the instrument. She was an incredible pianist, both classically and and but mostly she could play things by ear. She was mm-hmm. she could play the blues, she could play any standard you threw at her. Um, Folk music. I mean, she really and she could play the accordion and the violin. She was she was probably the most gifted, uh, just naturally. Um, and wh- and that's what in a weird way why I started to gravitate towards classical music at a certain point because that's where I don't know. I knew that I could um, because I wasn't going to be able to jam <laughs> like my mother could on the banjo. Um, I knew that if I started started you know listening to more composed pieces. And sort of figure out some of those, those secrets and some of those tricks. Um, they were elements that um, I don't know. I could sort of keep as my own in this mm. sort of you know very loose folk world. <laughs> Do you still have your first song? Did you actually write it down at some uh, point? I think the first song I wrote was called "The Dancing Lady." <laughs> I don't know. I didn't. I don't. I, I think I even did. It was written down. I think I did write it down in music paper somewhere, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, but it wasn't. I mean, the, the, it's interesting because the first the first ever song that I really wrote that I still perform occasionally, and that is oddly enough um, it's very prescient uh, at the moment is it, it's a song called Liberty Cabbage. I, I wrote it when I was about sixteen, and it's about you know how how horrifying America is. <laughs> And um, and beautiful at the same time, you know this sort of this uh, di- dichotomy between dark and light, and uh, and so I wrote that song and I still perform it. Um, and and the the reason it's Liberty Cabbage is because I'm because they called li- uh, sauerkraut Liberty Cabbage during the First World War. Anyways, so I was interested in that, and that had to do with when I came to back to New York to go to boarding school. That was sort of my re-entrance into the um, into the United States, and uh, so coming to terms with that, and then and then I so I wrote that, and then my mother adored that song, and then I went off and wrote about thirty others, and all of which she thought were terrible, <laughs> derivative, <laughs> derivative. I was going original. all over the place, yeah. you know, trying too hard. They could have been brilliant now that I look back, but but she just was not having it. 
So I kind of forgot them all. And then I wrote this one song called Beauty Mark, which is actually on my first album about her. And she adored that one. And, and it was sort of, that was the process by which I um, kind of got on the, the rails of, of, of where I was going in terms of songwriting. You know, in, uh, in my introductions to, to your work, as, I, I, as you said to me a little while ago, uh, I, I came in on the wave of Want One. Yeah. Um, you're already a completely formed artist <laughs> and, um, and working in this wonderful way where there are whiffs and riffs and underlays of classical music yeah. in your songwriting. Did that evolve or was that part of your songwriting, uh, as it were, uh, catalog from the very beginning? You no, know, I mean, that, as I said, at, 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 I mean, before even with, with Chopin and Beethoven, as I said before, and mostly pian- the piano repertoire, I was, mm-hmm. I was listening to those chords and um, affected by them. Um, but really, when I, after the Verdi's Requiem experience, and I was, and I was utterly uh, possessed after that. I mean, there's all I listened to was opera after that. Um, mm. And in fact, there was this. Um, there's a, some very interesting stories from that period because uh, w- one thing that happened was that um, there was this. Uh, well, there's two stories. One, one is that. Uh, there was a, a famous guy. I can't remember his name. I gotta get his name, but um, he was he had this record library in Montreal, and it was a famous uh, record library where you could go and rent albums and huh. CDs. You know, which which used to be common. Like you go to the library right. and rent. But he had all classical music and all opera, and he especially knew about opera. But there was one catch: he was deaf. Oh my goodness! He was completely deaf. He'd gone deaf, but he knew all the great opera recordings. So he, so I went to him, and he's the one who, who, who kind of ferried me through uh, the, the the great like he 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 you know Salty's uh, Salome with Birgit, Birgit Nielsen, and then there was, um, you know uh, Don Carlo with uh, Placido Domingo and uh, Shirley Verrett and all that, and so and uh, so he really. He really, and, and I remember him like at one point because I was into the movie Diva at that point. Sure. And there was that, uh, I guess it was Wilhelmina Fernandez. It was Wilhelmina Fernandez. Who sang that in the film. And I was like, I love her version. He was like, why are you listening to that version? You should listen to, I don't know, it was like Monstrat Caballero or something. Or Callas. I, you know, or Callas yeah. or something. But, um, but, he, but it was interesting because he, ha- he couldn't hear any of the recordings. Oh. So, so he kind of did that. So that was, uh, that was happening on one end. And then on the other end, and this is also equally as dramatic is that, or perhaps even more so, is that my mother, who I, whom I mentioned, you know, she had, they had a friend who was an opera fan. Mm-hmm. Anyways, his name is, is is Peter Weldon. He's still alive. He's and he just turned eighty. But his cousin, uh, her his cousin's father was a huge opera fan, old old man. And he had died, and he had this, and he had this, this extensive uh, uh, LP collection. He had died, and then the the wife had kept the albums, um, but then she was murdered. <laughs> oh goodness gracious! She was murdered, and and uh, presumably by her daughter. Anyways, uh, like like but like it sounds blo- like the beginning blo- of an opera. Legend, <laughs> and there was blood all over the house, and my mother had to go over and clean up the house. And they brought me my first opera records, and they had blood on them. <laughs> you were destined. You were destined for a dramatic career, Rufus. My so, gosh! So, so those were my first records. Were were from a murder scene, um, and uh, so, so, so it was between the deaf guy teaching me. So it was always very. It's always been. And you know what? I could go on for hours. I mean, my my connection to opera has always been very high high drama. And, uh, and 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 low and low depth, um, <laughs> but you you so you begin your career as a performer, writing songs yes. and performing them yourself and recording them yes. and touring and whatnot. What's the trigger point, if right. any one particular, that set you on the path to running your first opera, right. Prima Donna? Well, I mean, I, as I said, I, you know, I was I was an opera fanatic. From from uh, from the age of thirteen, I knew immediately that I didn't want to be. 
how can I say this? I didn't, I, I was not an academic. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't terrible in school, but I just, I just didn't get school in general. Um, I just wanted to write my music. So, so I, uh, so I think. If it's any consolation, many great composers yeah. didn't get school. <laughs> yeah, I just either. didn't understand it. But um, but I, but not. I did go. I mean, I went to McGill uh, in music. Um, I was accepted, but kind of by the skin of my teeth. Um, but I went nonetheless. And um, and I, I think in the back of my mind, I always knew that 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 really my my bread and butter would be uh, in the family business of songwriting. Um, and uh, and that and I and I think I knew early on that that, that, that the the um, the oddity of me of someone of my age being so knowledgeable of this strange form of music um, would could be a great um, secret weapon <laughs> in 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 the creation of my my work mm-hmm. and so I started to really um, uh, borrow from opera. And just and, and write songs in, in, in more of a kind of uh, dramatic form as opposed to this linear pop form, and um, and it really kind of set me as, apart from a lot of my most of my contemporary all of my contemporaries. I mean, one of the things that grabbed me right away listening to your music was that it wasn't the we've had you know throughout the seventies, eighties, and the nineties there were people who would take bits of a piece of classical yeah. music and either riff on it. Yeah. Or actually create new lyrics to a popular that goes back yeah. to the 1920s oh, yeah, and 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what fascinated me about your integration of even references to pieces of of concert music or operatic music is that wholly integrated into an original composition, and it's almost as though I'm thinking of the of the song that has bolero, right, right, that's right, woven right, into the yeah, background, yeah, yeah, and it's not. Look, ma, no hands. Look how cleverly I have uh, put some of bolero into my song. It's well, that's the only thing that could be there. Yes, in other words, yes. you 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 found you figured out for yourself in the in the realization of your own voice as a composer um, how to make it yeah, integrated, yeah. not added. Well, the per- I mean, one of the people who really, really uh, influenced me in that in that um, sphere, and because it wasn't, you know, like I mean, yes, I love. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, and you know Tommy, and 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 kind of this, you know, the, these these kind of rock acts who kind of imagined opera as this, you know, over the top, right. crazy thing. Which you know that's fun, but I never saw opera. I, I always respected opera for what it is, which mm-hmm. is a a whole form. Um, and uh, or or like when Freddie Mercury was singing with with Kabbalah. Yeah, I mean that was interesting, right. but it I got that it was it wasn't really. Um, I don't know. It was it was charming. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying. Uh, yeah. It. Sure. Um, but uh, but but anyways. But but the, but 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 what I'm trying to say is that with my compositions and with what I use in uh, in terms of opera, I n- really wanted it to be um, fundamentally based on the same kind of solid structures that. Uh, Either an opera is built on, or a Schubert song is built on. <laughs> you know, it's this—it's these moves and shifts and chord changes that uh, that are um, solid, I guess. You know, and 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 meaningful, and not uh, just for an effect. I mean, um, so uh, so yeah. There was something else I was going to try to say that I completely forgot. Um. <laughs> well, let me ask it this way that might trigger it is that um, you have respect for, as it were, as you so charmingly mm-hmm. say, the family business, yeah. you know, the creation of a great 32-bar yeah. song sequence, as it were, and a deep respect for uh, an aria or a duet or an, an ensemble or chorus or a prelude or whatnot, which has a different structure yeah. and different demands on it. But you found you have found, until we get into the to the writing of an opera itself, you found a way to genuinely integrate aspects of classical music yeah. into your songs that make them no less songs yeah. and no more yeah. classical music. They become their own genre. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it hasn't. It, it's not for. It's not a gimmick. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and and um, and I do find that. Uh, yeah, I, 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 and I didn't want it to be a gimmick on either end of the specter. You know, yeah. spectrum. Sorry, mm-hmm. uh, where where. In terms of when I came to 
get a record deal in Hollywood, and and and, and which I did get, um, they could still uh, say, "Oh, this is something we can market." <laughs> you know, this can maybe make it on the radio. Um, you know, you know. So it was, I think I think a lot of that. It's interesting because I, what I what I am probably most fortunate to have, and this is from both my parents, um, is that they were from their real, the, the kind of the real fund, the fundamental um, uh, point of their musical existence is really folk music. I mean, they were of a generation that, I mean, with the help of Bob Dylan and the help of Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. Joan Baez. You know, Joan Baez. But, yeah. but even, it wasn't even their material that they that they respected the most. It was it was following their lead in terms of listening to field recordings. Right. And, their aesthetic. And, yeah, their yeah. aesthetic and, and also their their reverence for for uh, music of the of American music from the from the farm from farmers and blues and from this very very um, uh, pure and uh, and also and it and it also attached to to a lot of English folk there was an English folk movement as well in the seventies late sixties and seventies so so there was this kind of purity and this kind of um, how can I say it a sort of um, really un uh, uncompromising <laughs> uh, attitude towards music, which uh, which was imbued uh, in me through that and in, in from that world, and and I think the same thing exists in opera. Pop music is different, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but I kind of I think in a strange way with the because because a lot of what hap- happens in the opera world w- was you know horrific uh, to like the the folk people. Um, and then I call them folk Nazis, but uh, some people have been upset about that term. So I, folk whatever. fanatics. Folk fanatics. Uh, but uh, uh, and 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 then and, and vice versa. Like the, the the opera people don't understand what's going on in the folk world. Um, but there's similar. There's a similar. Um, uh, what is it? Um, arch. Well, opera, <laughs> attitude. Opera at its best <laughs> uh, has some incredible similarities. If you think of something like Vesti la Juba from Pagliacci. Yeah, yeah. It's a cry of pain, and it is it is formalized, it has a tenor range, it has yeah. structure and whatnot, but it is is much of a lament for lost love as a great folk song. It's, yeah. as, it's as gorgeous yeah. in its own way as Barbara yeah. Allen. Yeah. It's yeah. just different. Yes, yes. And unless you're able to respect the epitome of any art, you don't really have a right yeah. to criticize one against. Well, the what's other. funny about it is that what it is is that it's also a class thing because I mean mm-hmm. the the folk, the folk people were um, of which my mother and father were really that was their their baseline. Um, they were into what poor people uh, were playing in the Ozarks and and or in you know the English countryside, and so and it was it was it was very it was devo- it was it was it was anti aristocratic you know mm-hmm. whereas opera is the ultimate aristocratic um, um, form, but what's ironic is that I think most composers took from folk music too. I mean, sure. you know that's where they you know that there, there is a kind of underground <laughs> musical railroad of folk music going into you, opera. And, you go you into know. even, you even go into Mozart and you hear, you know, the, the some of the movements of some of his piano concertos could be lullabies or folk songs. They're yeah, just, they've yeah. just been touched by genius. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. much. Well, when it comes time to, as it were, open that door into the world of opera, what was the catalyst mm. for you? Well, to write one there of was your a own? lot of things. Uh, for one thing, for one, I you know I knew I knew that eventually I would have to write an opera, <laughs> um, meaning that you know that too is very operatic. <laughs> yeah, that, that that I could sort of I could sort of you know skirt around the edges as much as I wanted to, but 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 that if I wanted to, if if in fact I I I, I want I would want to die somewhat happy. Um, I would I would have to have written an opera to to do that you know it was like I I would have always regretted that if I didn't so so it was always in the back of my mind and actually Hadrian was the first um, subject that I thought of would, would would make a great opera Hadrian was what drew it to what drew um, you to well the I, story? I read the book mm-hmm. the the, the uh, Margaret Yourcenar memoirs of Hadrian that that started it um, I knew immediately that 
that the the opera I would write wouldn't be that you know a, a kind of direct translation of that 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 memoir, fictional memoir, but um, but uh, but just somehow those characters in that time period and and uh, all of the um, the turbulence of of of, the, of Rome, you know, just made sense to me. Um, and you know, also I was coming out of the closet at the time and. I'd been out, I'd been out actually for a long time. I, I came out when I was thirteen, but I was you know I was I was in the grips of 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 of, of, of trying to understand my sexuality. So it was it was very you know it, it was very important. That book was has always been very important for for gay men uh, for for a long time for many generations now. So that happened, but I knew that due to my um, shall we say. Uh, vacation <laughs> from you know musical classical musical education um in in terms of going into the pop world that i didn't really have the chops to uh conquer rome <laughs> musically yet you know it wasn't you had to find you know, a smaller principality yeah, I first you know right? i wouldn't I, I just didn't i didn't feel confident in my abilities so you chose paris seven, instead yeah <laughs> so so i so i knew i needed another story and then and and you know I will say, and, and, and I'm sure that most uh, composers can uh, attest to this, especially operatic composers and probably playwrights as well. You know, you know, you you are distinctly aware when it's going to happen. There's like a strange light that goes on or a bell that goes off and suddenly the characters um, are, it's like they're conceived or something and they and then you have to eventually give birth to them. It's like a strange cosmic thing. I mean, you're searching for them and then you know. And one day, and what happened is that I was, I knew I wanted to write an opera, and uh, and I was watching this um, great documentary um, about. Uh, oh, sorry, it was an, it was an interview of of Lord Harwood and and Marie Callas uh, in Paris in the seventies, and uh, I was watching it, and at a certain point, Maria Callas said, "And that is what it is to be the prima donna," and the minute she said that. This whole story just fell in my lap, and I was like, "Of course, an opera about an opera singer, and takes place in one day. There's a butler. There's, you know, there's a journalist. I can tie in, you know, my own parts of my own life, parts of my mother's life. It just the the characters were there. There's a maid. It's four people. It's easy. I mean, it's whatever. It's 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 conceivable. Anyway, so that happened at the beginning of the week on Monday. The end of the week." I got a call from Peter Gelb, <laughs> who had just taken over at the Met, um, and who I did—I had never met. Um, I knew him. I knew of him through Vangelis, because uh, Vangelis uh, was on uh, Sony, I guess. So I knew of him, and I guess he had heard in the ether that I was this opera fan, and he and he called me. He said, "Say, Rufus, I hear you're an opera fan. Do you have any ideas?" Or I'm just curious. And I was like, well, actually, <laughs> I do. As of four days ago, uh, yes. As of four <laughs> days, and I walked up to the Met, and I, and I told him the story, and he kind of, he said, I, on the spot, I want to do this opera. So it happened. And then, you know, then other things have happened. There's a whole the whole saga after that, and then it didn't happen in the Met, and, and we can go on. Um, I will say that Peter and I have reconnected. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are now... Um, we're back together again. Um, You're more than Facebook friends. Yes, yes, uh, and and you know I'm 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 really indebted to him for having started that process. What what ended up happening, and I, and I'll go. I'm kind of zipping through like a whole um, opera in itself. But but what ended up happening is that is that also my mother's health uh, started to decline at that time, and um, and she, you know, if the opera had been at the Met. Um, then she wouldn't have seen it, mm. you know. She would have died, and having having it not go, go to the Met, um, and having it had have to go to the Manchester Festival, what was going to be five years turned into one year, and uh, and she got to see the opera, and I think that that was cosmically sort of the, the um the uh, the, the reason for all of that. I saw it in London, and I take away many happy memories of having seen the two performances actually, but one of the things that was so striking was the very end of the opera. Because so often composers, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit like uh, the first act problem in a play. You don't know how to end. You you right. set up this great story, and then the working out of it in the second act, if it's a comedy or it's, if it's a tragedy, it's the third or fourth or fifth act. But you found so many wonderful points along the way to develop your story, and then you delivered 
yeah. like nobody's business, <laughs> tying it all up into this most. And it's at that point that I felt most in the presence of whatever inspiration Maria Callas must have given you. Oh, thank because you. Because the idea of the artistry continues, yeah. uh, and yeah. along with the fireworks, yeah. of course. <laughs> nothing is complete without fireworks, right? But uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about is um, your process of writing opera, right. because writing a popular song, um, it's a finite right. amount of time, three, yeah. four, maybe yeah. five minutes if it's an extended yeah. piece. But an opera has dramaturgy. It has the things that connect one scene to another. It has um, exposition that a song doesn't need to have. So how do you, how did well, you go about well, – let's take it. Yeah. Let's move to Hadrian. How does – how did you craft the, as it were, the structure yeah. of Hadrian for yeah. yourself in order to allow you to create it all the way through? I mean, having, you know, I used to go to the Met cancellation line when I was thirteen alone. Okay, so, so I've been, you know, breathing and throwing up <laughs> this material uh, heavily for many years. And um, so when it came time to actually deliver in that forum, um, it was it was a relief. Uh, I had spent many years in the pop world, you know, constantly trying to edit and and you know get to the point and be concise. And all of my songs were five minutes, so I, so I would that was always a struggle for me. So so it was it was, it was just more natural for me to 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 stretch it out. Mm. Um, also, I will say, and this is this is one of the main, I, I think, one of the main um, tools for doing that, is that you have to treat every voice of the piece as its own separate solo um, being. Meaning, the third oboe player, the the timpani part, the. Uh, you know, certainly the 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 the, the soloists, um, but even you know, the the minor parts, they all have their own kind of long game that they should be playing, and that and that can sort of, and and the, and those, the the climax of of those of those ensembles or or those you know, uh, um, even even tiny even triangle parts, whatever, <laughs> kind of can 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 resolve in the middle of somebody else's aria, you know, and so so it's these kind of tectonic plates, I guess, that that are within opera between the singers and the orchestra, and also the drama that um, that have their own sort of separate existence. I mean, you know, like right now with Hadrian, there. I mean, I love the main characters, of course, and I feel like I've developed really great arcs. But what what starts to become my favorite people are all the are all the sub characters. And, and, and you really start to wonder, like, what are they doing at this point in the drama in their lives and, and, um, and, and stuff like that. So, so I think it's just you have to, it's, you have to, really, you, you have to revel in the, th- the three-dimensional quality of, of what opera is musically. And, um, and so uh, that's kind of, you know, I was ready to do that. So for Hadrian, did the libretto come first and then you took the entire piece and, yeah. and, and well, as it was were, it, digested well, it? No, what was interesting, uh, it's very interesting because with, I mean, with, with, with Prima Donna, I was, I was um, primarily concerned about uh, both, you know, creating a dramatic uh, arc mm-hmm. and also uh, orchestration. Uh, I'd never orchestrated anything, so I was. Uh, I, that's where I focused. That's why I did it in French, because for me, opera in English, it, it kind of works sometimes, and it kind of doesn't work other times. So I just didn't want to deal with that issue then and there. Um, and 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 with the libretto, I had a great friend, my friend Bernadette Colomine, who uh, we we wrote it together. She's French, and and it was just great, like two friends working together, having a good time. And I'm very proud of that libretto. It's very simple. It's not a masterpiece, but it's but it's it it, it fulfilled its purpose. Serves for me, the drama, you know. So that was that. Um, I knew that with Hadrian, I had to go deeper, and I had to really um, mine uh, the uh, the kind of. Uh, the, the the dangerous areas <laughs> of, uh, of 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 the theater, and uh, so I I worked with Daniel McIver, who's a, who's a great Canadian playwright who'd never written in an opera before, and uh, and we embarked on this um, very tempestuous, very um, 
uh, dramatic uh, uh, relationship in terms of, of of hammering out the libretto, and uh, and we had to. It was a tug of war, and uh, and uh, and there were moments when I when I thought it was going to collapse. Several moments when when either he was going to walk away or I was going to walk away. Um, but that being said. Um, I think both of us knew, and especially, and, and Alexander Neef needs a, a lot of credit, deserves a lot of credit. He knew that um, really the best librettos are are, 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 are are brought about through strife. <laughs> it's, it's All you yeah, have to yeah, do is yeah. read the correspondence between Verdi <laughs> yeah, yeah. and his librettist yeah, and Strauss, Strauss and, and Hugo von Hofmann style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a duel to the death. Yeah, it's a duel to the death. And, <laughs> and we, usually and the composer we, wins. Yeah, yeah, and the composer <laughs> always wins. But 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 not without, you know, bleeding and sure. and 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 without uh and, and without the the the, the librettist, you know, trying <laughs> to sell his point. <laughs> yeah, to do it to do it and then and then thankfully, you know, we very very thankfully actually there was um a wonderful, uh, our wonderful dramaturg Corey Ellison who who was brought in at a certain point to really if she had not come in uh, to to sort of referee the 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 situation and 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 you know really um you know uh, broker certain deals and uh, I don't think it would have happened. That that was the, that was the, the kind of the saving. She was really the saving grace of this of this piece. And uh, yeah, and then and then we did it. And now you know I saw Daniel last night and we were you know hugging and 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 we're, we're we like each other a lot. But it was it's interesting because it was it was um it was pretty touch and go for a while. But I imagine one of the things you encountered is something that we hear often in the composer-librettist relationship is that there is there is the condensation of a novel into a play where you still are dealing with the words having to carry the entire action. The further condensation of, let's say, a novel or a film or a play into an opera is that both parties have to have an even greater trust that the music can carry the yeah. action. And you do not have to say everything. Right. The drama can show something in 16 bars of interlude music and where the character actually yeah. acts out what originally took a half a page to, yes. to yes. read. Yes. And so the further economizing of gesture is what makes opera in some ways so powerful yeah. because yeah. it's as much what you don't say. Yes. As it is what yes, you do yes. say, and I th- and I think, I mean, I'm not going to speak for Daniel, um, totally, but I think that that was something that he had to um, come to terms with, um, and I had to come to terms with the fact that um, I think my main thing, which was which was uh, the the ev- an evolution that I experienced, was that uh, you know especially with prima donna, I very much was able to lean on. On somewhat on, on somewhat archaic forms, uh, the, the 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 archaic forms that opera presents sure. us with, which I adore. I mean, I, I'm I'm an old school opera fan. I, I you know want my you want your Bellini yeah, yeah, don't you? Yeah, I want my you know <laughs> maid scene and my you know fainting and you know like I, I I get into that. But I do, I have to understand that we don't live in that peri- period anymore, and that there are just certain things that um, read as. Um, you know, trite, I guess, to certain audiences, and uh, and I was fine with that for for prima donna because it's about a prima donna, so it's like you, you have license to, to 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 kind of traipse around in that territory. That's what she's feeling. That's what these women are like, uh, you know, and, and that's why I love them, you know. Uh, and they are uh, larger than life. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so so, but I think once I got into Hadrian, it it had to. Um, it had to really be uh, just dramatically um, relevant uh, and and not um, you know rely totally on on, on on the on the machine. So something a little uh, a little granular. How did you decide who was going to be a baritone? Who yeah. was going to be a tenor? <laughs> Hadrian is a baritone yeah. or a tenor? Well, I mean, I Hadrian is is a baritone. Mm-hmm. There's a, the tenor. The tenor is well. There's two tenors. There's a, Antinous is the tenor. Right. Uh, so so and then and then there's also Trajan, <laughs> who's is an older tenor. Um, uh, and then Plot. I, you know, as a true opera lover. Um, you know, my favorite singers are my my favorite characters and singers are usually the 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 sort of altos. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, well, uh, that is or, or, the but, but, but they're sort of soprano. What are they? I don't know what they are. Dramatic, mm-hmm. like like Princess Eboli. Mm-hmm. And, that's a, that's uh, a dramatic mezzo. Yeah, dramatic mezzo. Those are kind of my. It's favorite a mezzo role. with soprano high notes. Yes, there you go. Those <laughs> are those are the the best 
those are the, med- the most interesting characters, um, like Carmen, you know, for yeah. instance. But um, but they're um, also usually distressed. I yes, mean, they always yes, have a problem. Yes. Amneris, Eboli, yeah, Amne- yeah. Carmen, all of those uh, high mezzos. Uh, Azucena, yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, oh, also, and you know, Janicek has some great with the mother and in in in, uh, in, in uh, Yanufa, mm-hmm. you know. So, so they're, yeah, they're always the most. Um, Dramatic, 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 but also I don't know, human in a certain way. You know, they're they're never these ideals. You know, they're never like the most beautiful woman or the. That's you fascinating. Know, You're you know, right. You're you know, right because the high mezzos have uh, have great depth of character. Yeah. Even yeah. when they are conflicted, I mean, look at Amneris. Look at Eboli. Yeah. You know, she herself was once the king's lover, and now yeah. she's on the and outside. As a Chana, I mean, my God. Yeah, there's that's there's an like, opera by that, itself. That's like that's. What a character! But so you you decided. So, so, so I I needed a character like that. So yeah. that's Plotina, mm-hmm. um, and then you know, interestingly enough, um, I mean, I knew Sabina, the wife, would be this a soprano, and what began, she's kind of the character. I mean, I knew that you know, Hadrian had to be this, you know, there had to be this incredible um, voyage that he took as a character or Plutina. I knew exactly what she was right away. She was like Joan Crawford, you know, <laughs> here we go. And then, and then, you know, Antinous is this, uh, uh, sacred, almost go- spiritual godlike figure, um, or Christ-like, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, but then Sabina and Turbo in a lot of ways, uh, who's more of a bass baritone, um, Sabina, who I was originally just thought, oh, I guess she's like the poor soprano, but she's the one who has this like dramatic um, shift uh, by the end of the third act, and um, she kind of wrote herself. I mean, it's, fu- it's funny. That's another thing I love about opera is that there's certain characters that kind of jump out and become what they need to become, and you just have to, uh, you know, facilitate that, and, and you have absolutely no idea how it's going to end up. And uh, a, a bit like the stories of the Marshallin, you know, mm-hmm. you know when they, how she just sort of popped out of nowhere, <laughs> and and is, even though she's not the main character of that opera, she is nonetheless sort of the most. She's um, the driving moral yeah, force. Yeah, yeah, Of the so, entire, she's the so, she's the reason the opera has to be. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, and so there's and so I'm happy that that happened with with one. Well, some of the characters were very deliberate. Some of them, you know, became who they had to become. So in the process of writing an opera, as opposed to the process of writing a single song, what's your, what's an overall method? Do you simply get up every morning at seven o'clock and sit down at your desk like some writers do and say today? I, I mean, I play, write. I play every day mm-hmm. on the piano and sing my songs. I don't compose every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I, with this opera, Hadrian, I wrote about uh, three or four Big moments. I think I wrote the beginning, a few things in the middle, and the end. Uh, I composed mm-hmm. that first uh, in a very rudimentary way. Not, mm-hmm. not, no, no complex um, voicings yet or anything. But it was like this is gonna be. And then you know, I actually started orchestrating those moments first. Uh. And then it's like a tent. You have yeah. the posts, and you kind of connect the the poles and and then you have a structure at the end. You hear that uh, a lot of even the the composers of earlier centuries where something some some central important mm-hmm. aspect of the creation is first. Yeah. Like a painter and sometimes you know he yeah, he or she, you know he or rarely more rarely sadly she uh, had to find the 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 spot for that hill or yeah. where does that crucifix go? Yeah. And then the rest of it, yeah, what well, gives you falls direction? In, it's falls like what into you're, place. What you're heading for. So, what's the workshop process uh, been like? How it's is it amazing? Uh, how's it? Really what's great. it like to hear your 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 child being born, Ooh. as it were? Well, <laughs> you know, I you know it's have, incredibly emotional. Um, I try not to uh, let on, you know, what I'm feeling. Um, you know, I think what I think what it is, and I remember this. More with prima donna, though. I though though, though it was a little more intense with prima donna. Um, though though the same feelings were 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 coming back to me um, with this. But is that you know, as I said, my mother had, was had died was dying during the composition of that, and really by the time, uh, well, the time by the time the opera made it to to Canada and, and to New York, she had passed away. But 
in listening to the first workshops of that, I was so I was devastated because I you know everything that I had been going through was in the music, and it was all stuff that I couldn't really deal with at that time or come to terms with. But it was still it was what was happening. Art imitates you know, life. and it's this and it's this and it's very um, it's heavy. Uh, and, and with this opera too, there's just so many. Um, uh, it, there's a sadness <laughs> that I have, which thankfully um, I'm able to release <laughs> in this music, and um, and I'm very fortunate to uh, to 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 have that. And, and opera has always provided me with that. I mean, I mean, I mean, I you know, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm a depressive person. I mean, there is depression in my family. Um, I have I have other issues, uh, but but there is nonetheless a kind of I guess. You know, just uh, partaking in the fruits of creativity. You know, you're always going to be toying with you know the darker forces, and um, and, and that does take its toll. And um, and I feel that with opera, you're able to do that. But in the end of the day, you have to transfigure into something else. Like you has there's a sort of um, uh, Heightening that uh, out of that uh, area that uh, that occurs, um, and, and you know whether and that's you know with um, uh, especially with Verdi uh, for me uh, that is sort of the um, that that has always been uh, the, the 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 saving grace mm-hmm. uh, with that music is that you know by the end of even though it's so sad and so tragic there's you are in a better place at the end of the opera. Well, I, we say it often uh, in our company that uh, opera does have the opportunity and does have the ability to change your life. Yeah. You just need to open your heart to it. Yeah. And you've clearly, throughout your life from the time you were 13, opened your heart to this wild and crazy art form. And yet you are able to maintain, um, a, as it were, a parallel career as a performer. And I'd love to finish our time yeah. together by... Going back to Rufus, the the performer, right. I've seen you in concert on a number of occasions, and one of the things that uh, has always impressed me is that you have this real ability to not only connect with the audience because you are so direct and your heart is open, but you also have this ability to, as it were, exist in your own world at the same time and not make it seem like you're being like Glenn Gould, not right, paying attention right, to the audience right, at all. Right. Do you have... Uh, What's going through your head yeah. when you go out on stage yeah. to perform yourself? Well, I, I mean, one thing I do want to say, and this does—I mean, this relates to that, but it also still relates to opera—is that, is that, I, and I've done the research. <laughs> uh, is that you know, for a long time, I was like, I think I'm the first ever opera composer who was also a professional singer. Um, I did. Turns out, I'm not totally. There was uh, in Mozart's time the the guy who. Um, premiered Figaro, also wrote operas, uh, that singer. So, so that, but I think he's the only one. So, needless to say, it's not a common um, quality. Um, but I will. But, but right now, uh, in this day and age, and, and certainly with you know the um, the peril facing the form, uh, whether it's through lack of funding or you know dwindling audiences. Um, I feel that there's a kind of uh, emotion and passion and uh, instinct that I can offer to my compositions ha- through the fact that I've been I am a singer myself. <laughs> and there's this thing where whether you're a fan of opera or not, um, you can hear, uh, and the singers can all hear this immediately that 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 the melodies are coming from an area that is uh, true, you know, uh, and, and, and um, which isn't always the case, I think, with a lot of contemporary opera. I mean, it just, um, and uh, so I, you know, I, I do feel it's a calling and, um, and, that, and, that, and that the fact of me being a performer myself and a, and, and mo- and, and a singer primarily, um, it is. Uh, it is a sort of. Um, it's a. It's a stage that this art form needs to go through. <laughs> would you ever? Would you ever write a role for yourself in an opera? Mm, 
I've thought about I, I thought about like a cameo thing yeah, for exactly. five seconds. Exactly. I did. I I, I don't. Uh, no, it, it's not. It's who knows. You know what's going to happen. I did. You know the, the the one opera that I think I could actually sing, which which I'm I'm kind of tempted to to maybe attempt at one point is is if if there was a production of of the magic flute. I could probably do Papageno. You'd be a wonderful <laughs> Papageno. Because you have that, that yeah. you have that impish <laughs> sense of humor. Yeah. And yeah. also that 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 desire that everybody has because in a very small theater. That's all right. We'll find <laughs> the, know, we'll find the venue, we'll find the venue for it. Yeah, that's the one th- th- that would be kind of interesting to me just to, to actually because um, I know I think that's the only role that I could ever do. Well, but, you um, know, it was as you know so well. It was premiered yes. by Mozart's buddy and librettist. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. was a more popular singer. He wasn't an operatic yeah, singer, yeah, yeah. more of an actor than yeah. anything else. Yeah. So, so, so there's that. But, um, but for the moment, I really, I mean, I, I'm, I am more concerned, and I am concerned about it, about 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 the the form being, um, you know. Uh, protected and 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 continued and and really offered to younger people yeah. who who I think really need it. They might not know they need it, but they start, I feel like they do. Um, and um, well, then they need to get to the and, Canadian Opera yeah, Company yeah. premiere of this for sure. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. When we do these podcasts, we like to ask just about everybody the same sort of mundane questions right. to to end, to sort of have a common denominator. So uh, feel free to answer or say no. Um, what did you have for breakfast? Uh, an omelet. Um, are you re- – now, you're in the middle of, you know, creating an opera and whatnot. But uh, are you reading a book at this time? And is there something that's uh, on your bedside that you're particularly f- fascinated by? Yes. Oh, God. What is, it's the, the, the Little Life or the Beautiful Life. That book that makes everybody cry about young people in New York. Oh God, the, a beautiful life. I just finished Naked by David Sedaris. It's fantastic. Which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, television have any spot in your life? Is there a particular uh, program or series that has caught your fancy in the last couple oh, of years? I'm I'm a Rachel Maddow addict. Addict. CNBC, <laughs> MSNBC, <laughs> yeah. every night at nine I o'clock Eastern. For better or for worse. I mean, I you know. I, I, there's problems with that at times. I'm aware, but but nonetheless, I I I, I subscribe. Um, do you have an app on your phone you find particularly useful? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> what's the best career, <laughs> What's the best career advice you've ever received? Um, what comes from the heart goes to the heart. <laughs> Powerful. Favorite singer outside of opera? Um, favorite singer outside of opera? I would say Nina Simone. Mm. Who Am I is probably one of my <laughs> Desert Island recordings of any <laughs> And last but not least, um, how do you deal with stress? Uh, <laughs> doesn't have to be the single way, doesn't but what's, a, be, what's yeah, a way you deal God, with stress? Because uh, I think every composer and performer listening to this would like to well, know. Well, you know what we have now, my husband and I, we live in L.A., and uh, we have a koi pond. And every morning we feed the fish, and it's uh, become quite um, profound. And actually, there's and, and this might be a good place to end it, because there's um, this dramatic story with the koi pond, where uh, and I got to get this straight here. What happened is that we had about a dozen fish, who, whom I had grown incredibly close uh, attached, to. attached to and close to. Um, and on the la- on the day that I finished my opera, right as I was finishing it, I looked outside and all the fish were dying. Something had gotten in the water, uh, I think probably chlorine or something, like the city had done something with the water supply. Anyways, and the fish were just dying left and right. Anyways, so I went down in a panic, uh, you know, tr- trying to figure out this. It took them out, put them in a bucket of water. You know, I, don't, I didn't know what to do. Finally, I called the... The pond people, they came, and what happened is that they, you know, they came and, and they had counted. Some of them were kind of half alive, and then, and but then they said, you know, uh, let me see. Hold on. Okay, they said five of them are dead, uh, for sure. And I thought, oh, you know, okay, that's sad, but. There's five 
characters in my opera. <laughs> so so maybe it's like the sacrifice, you know. The spirits have moved into them. So that's kind of where I was going. And then, you know, all the, the five main characters. And so then I, uh, I, I, they, they took the fish back and then, and then, and then, and then I called them later and they said, uh, actually, uh, more died, you know, more died than that. And I was like, okay. And then they were, but then they said, five survived. <laughs> <laughs> there's, n- there's nothing more to be said. Rufus Wainwright, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>